Hey folks, we're back with another Retro Rides uh, podcast, and this time we have um, a Retro Rides alumni, a, a man that has been around our forum since we were a forum, and uh, his name is Rob Richardson, which is a name you may or may not recognize, um, but the name Racer86, more of you probably will. He has built a number of very cool cars, quite iconic cars, um, and I know a number of people uh, that cite him as an influence, including myself. Um, he is... Uh, climbed the ladder of um, the automotive industry and now is an engineer at Jaguar Land Rover um, and as well as uh, doing various bits of freelance photography and writing and stuff like that so um, it's great to catch up with you Rob so uh, welcome. Thank you very much uh, quite the introduction. Um, ah, you're quite the man. Lovely lovely I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I did actually look and it was 2004 I actually joined joined the forum originally, which was the very beginning-ish, wasn't it, I think? Yep, yep, you were there within the first uh, first few months, which is a, a shockingly long time ago, which I don't like to think about. Uh, <laughs> so I'm going to start you with uh, our first question, which is uh, why cards? So, oh, it's a good one, isn't it? This is where the parental reference comes out and, and there, is, there is some of that, but I guess... Um, Oh, going right back. So I'd lived in the Peak District, which immediately distances you from everyone in and around you. So the need for transport and freedom and escape was uh, prevalent from an early age. Um, yeah, so mechanical things from push bikes to go peds to all that sort of stuff featured heavily. Um and my dad was the classic dad line, but he was very much into motorbikes when he was younger and never really did the car thing. The car thing came about from necessity of keeping him on the road more than actually, you know, being a diehard, passionate petrol head in that respect. But it meant there was always interesting cars around, usually, you know, Fiat Panda 4x4s and 2CVs and um, that kind of stuff that were always being worked on and, and, and kept on the road. But um, just more generally, things in the garage are always being taken apart and put back together. You know, at one point he had a telescope that filled an entire garage that he kind of bought as spare parts and built up and weird stuff from coffee makers to cameras. And it's always been things apart and, and going back together. And, um, and I was sort of raised kind of in and around that, which was really, really nice. Um, but cars was pretty much all me so I remember being I had a friend I was probably 14 um, and her mum had a Citroen 2ZV funnily enough which was a running theme um, and she gave it me because it failed its MOT and they couldn't get it through anymore and, and I sort of got that up and running and back together and sold it for the princely sum of £150 which kind of 14 years old was a was a king's ransom and um between that and a motorbike I was given um, that also didn't run and I got running and sold and swapped, worked my way up to one of those California go-peds. Do you remember those, those little folding petrol scooters? Oh, yes, I remember them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I used to have a paper round and at six in the morning, I used to fly around and do a paper round, <laughs> paper round on this scooter, which made me really really popular and um commute <laughs> i think it's like six or eight miles to the next village on it to go and get my wages every weekend so 
But then that got modified and taken to bits and the compression ratio increased and the timing modified to get a bit more umph out of it. So it'd do 32 miles an hour instead of 30. And, and you know, that was that was kind of it. And it sort of sows a, a seed and, and an approach to um, just mechanical things that that it was cars that really, um, really excited me. So, um you know, coming up to being 17, um, I already had my eyes on, you know, I had, to, I had to have a Mini. It's like the classic first car of my generation. But, you know, at 16, I bought my first Mini, which was 150 quid out of a field. And it had more holes in it than Mini. And I remember it was clinging onto its MOT by the skin of its teeth. And it was so bad that me and me and my dad actually sellotape bin bags over the holes and took it with what it literally had days of MOT left on it to the a mini show at Gaydon. And we did the parade of um of get the Gaydon for this for this mini show um with bin bags sellotaped all over it to keep the water out. And over the next year I kind of um learned how to build cars with virtually no tools. You know, I had a bits and bobs of a half inch socket set and um whatever dad had begged borrowed or amassed over the years tool wise and we we started putting this car together and you know learn how to weld it all up and obviously I was going to modify it and at that time it was kind of motorsport was the, the thing that really um captured my imagination and it was kind of as much as, as about wanting a mini it was kind of what the mini did it wasn't from a you know I want to go to car shows with it and have a cork board out the front and pictures of all the things I've done to it and brochures it was about you know these these cars handle they're cheap they're light they're fast when you modify them um you know got my hands on a Dave Vizard's uh Tuning Me A series book and look yeah He's got a lot Everyone's of answer for it. us, Dave. He's got a lot yeah. of answer. There's a lot of HIF 44 carburettors that have been badly filed by people in dark garages over the years, <laughs> which is why you can't get them anymore. They're really expensive when you do find them. So, um, so yeah, that first Mini, a one-litre City E, ended up as a roll cage, spot-lamped, bucket-seated, adjustable, suspensioned, eventually flip-fronted um, 1275 death trap. <laughs> nice. So, so, so you came in quite hard, really, for for a, for a first car. It sort of uh, it evolved quite rapidly by the sound of it. It did, yeah, and it was and it was great. You know, my all all my friends. It was kind of sort of six six form by then. They all kind of borrowed their mum's Fiesta and stuff, and had kind of really low powered, non interesting stuff. But there was kind of this the loophole still existed that cl- classic cars were kind of really cheap to insure and own, even as a seventeen year old. So. You know, my first car had a roll cage in it. And I remember the guy from Co-op Insurance, because you had like a local insurance rep, just yeah. came to look at it. And he sort of went, yeah, that's all right. Uh, and I, I know he wasn't <laughs> sure, but somewhere deep down, I just believe he'd seen this like 17-year-old lad that spent a year and every penny he could earn at his weekend job at a supermarket to build this car, which was his everything. And he sort of just made it happen for me and made it insurable and all that. So, 
you know, I reached a race round in that, and it was it, it was great until it all fell to bits. Well, eventually, all, all race cars do fall to bits. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Not, not, not a slight upon your building skills. So the first time I met you, you were um, living in the illustrious city of uh, Swansea um, at university studying motorsport. Mm. Uh, it sounds like there's a very direct route from your interest in your Mini to that. Um, yeah, yeah, there was. So um, I found myself at sixth form doing various things just to cover all bases because I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to be when I grew up or even if I really wanted to grow up. So, um, you know, things like physics and computers and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then it kind of came to leaving sixth form time and I really had to do something. And I, I just had no interest in anything at all other than cars you know it's just an absolute obsession so um I sort of looked around <laughs> at what sort of car things there were to do at uni and um it was Swansea Institute at the time I think it's Swansea Metropolitan now but they actually did a motorsport course and it was supposed to be the best one in the country and it was kind of enough of a bet hedging that there was an automotive career in it the other side um but more than that it was just it was just cars and going fast and making noise and all the reasons behind doing it so um I did that and I also had a friend that was going as well um so that kind of sealed the deal and I was in and I was off and I was living in Swansea and then you uh you met up with some other um interesting people while you were there which is nice uh, who mm. you may or may not get on the podcast at some point I'm hoping we will um our, our good friend James Hill uh, um, yes still in touch with in yeah. touch with James very much so. It's a, it's a, it's a good course from what I understand. Mm. It, uh, it, it seems to have a, a good reputation for turning out um, uh, reasonable people. So from there, we'll come back to your cars in a little bit because that's kind of the meat and bones of Rob, the Rob Richardson experience. <laughs> uh, but the um, so from uh, the Swansea uh, Institute, you graduated and then you did what? Yeah, so I um, I finished uni and was really really lucky. So I'd done so I'd done a year I'd done a summerish placement um, for John Smithwaite Motorsport. So that was historic Fords, basically Mark One Cortinas, Mark One Escorts, and all that sort of stuff. So I'd had this flavour of motorsport, um, and it was brilliant, but it sort of wasn't really where I wanted to go and and the reasons for that are sort of selfish because when you have a career in motorsport you've got to be really kind of focused and you spend long long hours building the cars all week and then you spend all weekend racing and I really selfishly sort of didn't want to build cars for anyone else I was you know this this hobby was all I wanted to do and I you know I want to build my own cars so um so I sort of was of the opinion at that point that that kind of wasn't where I wanted to go. Um, and then by pure chance, um, a guy, he was like a senior lecturer called Malcolm McDonald, and he was a, he was a well-known the, legend. The singer? Uh, no, fortunately not. But he had worked <laughs> at Lotus and done all sorts of stuff. So he, he had all these industry contacts and stuff basically got approached by um by a guy that owned a, a consultancy company for um OEM manufacturers into kind of the serviceability of their cars um got in touch with him and said look have you got any people that you 
you really um, would recommend or would put forward for an interview. And of course, you know, at this this time I was a bit worried because everyone was doing formula student and that was like really techie and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, I remember changing, I was in one workshop changing the gearbox in my Chevette rally car while they were all in pulling late nights on formula student. And I kind of thought, well, that's not what I want to do, but Chevettes and rallying are fun. So I probably made the right decision for me, but where it will pan out career wise, who knows? Because um, that was a good a good sticker for your fridge if you'd done formula formula student. Um, anyway, so long story very long. Um, I had an interview with this guy, and it was the most surreal interview of my life because he, he was in a really fancy restaurant in Swansea, which is somebody who just lived on five kilos of pasta and tomato sauce a week as a scumbag student because all my student loan was obviously frittered away on cars and parts and things. Um, uh, I've never really been in a fancy restaurant in Swansea, <laughs> but uh, it all went well. And over this big bowl of mussels that he was eating his way through, said, um, "Yeah, you've um, you've got the job." And that was uh, to go and work at Jag Land Rover, um, obviously in the West Midlands, which was right by where I lived as well. And um, it was in this it was in the service department, so working on kind of future service stuff. So how are the cars are put together and how they go apart and how you service them really efficiently and all this sort of stuff. So it was kind of right up my alley because it was so all the stuff I enjoyed doing with classic cars, but it was influencing engineering into the future to how the cars are designed and built and engineered so you can take them all apart as well. Sweet. So if anybody's got a Jaguar out there that they're finding really difficult to get at the bits of the packaging and trying to get to the to the right parts. Um, uh, Rob's on uh, Instagram. Yeah, don't, don't, um, don't, don't put my phone number <laughs> or email address on this. Whatever you do, uh, that's great. It's a, it's a, it's a, an, an ideal job, influence in the future. I, I like the uh, I like the thing. So let's go back a little bit um, to your cars. Mm. So you had your mini. Yep. Um, and. Did the you've had a couple of Chevettes? So what was the order of your Chevettes? Did the mini did the Chevettes follow the mini? Yeah, um, they did. Yeah. So 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 when I had my first mini, I was at a I was at a weird sort of blinkered point where all, all I was really interested in was minis. And you could have, you know, parked a Ferrari 250 short wheelbase next to me and I'd have been like, well, that, that's interesting, but you know, really it's only minis for me, which I, I sort of look back on fondly because now I sort of want everything and I need to <laughs> modify everything and I've not got enough space and enough garaging and I end up renting units and having things at friends' houses and all sorts of stuff. Um, but yeah, at that time it was kind of minis, minis, minis. And I, you know, my, my next mini was a, a 72 but it was a mark one back date and it was on tens and it had like the speedwell interior i did all that on it and um i built a 1380 engine for it out of various bits and donor cars and it had loads of really tasty stuff in it like carbon fiber windsor push rods and and all nice. sorts of stuff but there was sort of never enough money to really see it through i remember i rebuilt the engine for it and it was all steel strap bottom end it was kind of the dream um, and I rebuilt the engine on it because it had a rattle. Um, and when I say rebuilt the engine, I was sort of still at uni. So it was on a piece of cardboard in my parents' cardboard. I didn't even have an engine stand, but I, re you know, I, I, I learned rebuilding engines on the 1380 series. Um, put it all together and it still rattled and <laughs> still wasn't sure why. But I think it had quite a big cam in it and standard rockers and they didn't like each other. 
But I remember phoning my friend up that I was also at uni with, and I said, look, I've, this engine's back together, it's kind of running. This car is so fast that I'm pretty sure it's going to go bang. So just come out with me in it and let's go for a drive and kick its head in because you will not believe how fast this thing is. It's, it's unbelievable. And if it goes bang, I just want someone to have witnessed it because it was kind of <laughs> on a shoestring. Um, and we did, and we took it out for a raz and we span it and were hooligans and it, it was great. So it will, you know, live on in memory. But eventually that ate so many gearboxes because uh, I could never afford a proper gearbox to take the power. It ended up laid up in Mama and Papa's garage for six months which was a bit sad at the point I had to I had to take a national extra express bus back to Swansea and I thought oh. that this is this has gone too far now so I, I got enough money to put a cross pin diff in it and sadly sold it but that was all right so um then my kind of eyes were open through uni and rallying and all that sort of stuff to other cars and I've sort of done my, done my time with minis and got as far as I wanted to go um, and that's when Chevette's turned up so um, my friend had a Mark 1 Ford Escort and I've always sort of for, for no real reason that I don't uh, I can explain even now my my dad sort of had two opinions that he really pushed on me it was football's rubbish which has kind of stayed in good stead and also he didn't never liked Fords um, <laughs> And, and, so, and so when everyone else was getting Mark 1S Mark 2 Escorts to go rally, and I sort of was like, well, I'm not on the Ford. Um, I've had them subsequently, but uh, and there's nothing wrong with them at all. But then, the you know, the Chevette on paper seemed like a great option because it was coil springs at the back. It was, you know, a really successful tarmac rally car. It was a bit it was a bit left field. There weren't many people doing anything with them. I really liked this underdog history because it wasn't an escort and there was dealer team Vauxhall and it was a few good men with moustaches digging in their own pockets to to go racing. And it really felt like, you know, these are cool cars and they were really simple, really light, really spacious for carting stuff around in. Um, and so that's what that's what I ended up with. My my those of you who were on the form will remember it well. I think if you search for DTV Evo 2 Vauxhall Chevette, you can see where <laughs> I was in my head. You know, I was I was Tony Pond. I just couldn't grow a, you know, con convincing enough moustache. Um, that I, yeah, I, I started building, I built the Chevette and it was all, um, I did the Swansea Institute navigational rallies in it as well. I think I, I, I won... I won, was the winning driver in 2006, which was quite nice. And then Chevette, which ended up roll caged and spot lamps and bucket seats and harnesses, which is a bit of a theme. But it was my everyday car. You know, I drove it absolutely every day and um, I crashed it. And that was all very sad. Um, so at the time, um, they were still cheap cars. So I went and bought two more chevettes to fix it <laughs> one, was, one was the 170 quid and it was the now infamous um euro rat chevette yes which which sort of of all the things i've built and all the details i've done and learning to paint and build engines and weld and fabricate and order rare parts was probably the most famous car i ever had um well, I'm going to come on. I'm going to come on to that later. I think there's a reason for that, but um, mm. we will we will be revisiting your illustrious history of building a, a rat look uh, at some point. 
yeah so uh so yeah that was so that was chevette and then where did we go from there i think i sold i sold the chevette so the red rally car got fixed up and i decided to sell that and i i, I, uh, I was having one of the i have these cyclical waves of i should have a reasonably sensible everyday car so the the one i sort of don't talk about isn't the skoda 120 estelle um i'm out and proud about that it's the um rover 114 gta which it, on paper in my you know youthful snake by adult brain was a you know sensible for commute because it's 164 miles each way to Tam tamworth to swansea which is where i was living at the time and i used to do the journey quite a lot because i'd go back to mum and dad's to work on cars and things and um see mates so I was I was probably doing that once a fortnight it's quite a big trip anyway so in, in my mind a metro was just the development of the mini and oh it's got fuel injection and that's good and a k-series engine and they're dead good aren't they and it's got seats and this one had electric windows and it was a bit sporty and uh, I thought well I'm not going to leave it alone so I'll mess with it and lowered all the hydrogas suspension and pumped <laughs> it up to 16 psi and put GTI wheels and tyres on it which were 175 versus 165 so it was grippy and pointy and stiff and handly and it was all really good it wasn't which was when it did the old k-series thing on me and blew its head gasket and you know filled filled the header tank with oily milkshake so nice. um yeah which wasn't great especially changing the head gasket in the sideways driving welsh rain in the street uh, which was inevitably how all the major repairs were 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 carried out at the time. So that was short lived. That was a number of weeks. I think I put a head gasket on and get rid of it, and thought that was a that was a horrible mistake. Um, I've made a, I've made a terrible error. A te this was a terrible this was a terrible error of judgment, and well, I'm never going back there. So I think I bought a 106 XSI. Um, yeah, for 400 quid with no V5 off a terrifying man in Merthyr Tidville who ran an army <laughs> army surplus store. Uh, but I needed a car. Someone to died get... to get you that car. It was it was it was terrifying. I was you know I was I was too frightened not to buy it. But to be fair, true to his word, he did actually post the V5 on. Oh, and, and I got it. So it all ended up being legit, even though it was quite weird circumstances. So I basically I mean, I still lowered it and put a stupid exhaust on it because I can't help myself. Um, but that got me that got me to and from uh, home and, and basically emptied emptied all my belongings out of uni in it. The rear beam collapsed and it sort of died a death and was sold for pennies. But that was about the time the KP30 came on the scene. Ah. This is the car that changed everything. You know, there are these forks in your life where you know everything you go one way or the other and all things change and you know that car and that's why it's still with me today 14 15 years later when i'm terrible for buying doing up modifying messing with racing around and selling cars in a summer um has always stayed with me because of the huge kind of sentimental value um so that car did end up being my everyday car um, as I started my new job working at Jag Land Rover out of uni, um, and I think there's a there's a thread. So when I when I got it, I bought it from uh, a guy called Tony King in Bournemouth, and I'm still kind of 
Facebook in touch with with Tony, but he's a really good guy. He's really passionate about Japanese cars, and he had a few of these KP30s. I did not know you bought that off Tony King. It came from Tony King. I have learned a thing today. Yeah, he's done some really, really cool cars. Really cool cars. Um, Yeah, so I bought it off Tony King, and um, it was rattle canned in red oxide paint. It had a cream Dulux stripe over the top, two seats in it that were hammered, not much else. It's original 996 engine. It was originally kind of like a baby sicky, yellowy, browny green underneath. Um, it had Lotus twin cam steels on it, real life Lotus twin cam steels. Um, and it was just the coolest thing ever. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I remember I'd done at the time I was working nights at a supermarket um, to kind of make make ends meet, and I to to pay for it. The car was it was six hundred quid when I bought it, so I paid Jeez. I paid Tony six hundred quid for it, and I didn't even have six hundred quid, so the money was borrowed off my then girlfriend's credit card. It wasn't you know to 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 borrow the money to buy the car because it was just you know, the best thing I'd ever seen in my, my entire life. Um, and yeah, we drove, so I've worked two night shifts back to back. And then the car, I was still in, in Tamworth, Birmingham-ish, and the car was down in Bournemouth. And I remember being the most tired I've ever, ever been in my life. But I drove down in the then 106 to pick it up. And my dad drove the, the Toyota back. And I drove the 106 back, falling asleep at the wheel, quite terrifyingly. So that's so that's that's how it came to be in existence and in, and in my life. And then I think there's there's probably a bill thread kicking about, but I very quickly because you know I had a bit of time before my new job started, kind of re, rebuilt it all and modified it and painted it and. It still had its original engine at that point, but got it tidied up and got it on the road and it was still on the steels, but I put some Cobra seats on it and we painted it white, which was kind of the whole JDM thing, which was, you know, really was just the best thing ever at the time. You know, <laughs> I'd been I'd been minis are the best thing ever. And then I was like, I like motorsport and rallying, and then there's like, wow, the internet has given me Japan now and Japan does everything <laughs> and it's so much better. You know, it was like it was like punk rock music <laughs> I discovered for the first time when I found Japan. So I was like, yes, you know, I I, I need in on this this these scene. Are my, these are my people. Yeah, these are my people, and what what they are doing is incredible. So, um, you know, unable to find a a, a KPGC ten for six hundred quid bought on their credit card. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this this weird Toyota that I'd never seen before was the kind of the next best thing. It's a it's an an interesting thing because in some ways it epitomizes the Japanese scene in the UK in that it's not the obvious one. It's not. I mean, we got like we have a eighty six scene and all that kind of stuff, and there are two forty Zs, but a lot of the stuff we have over in the UK is not the same stuff they build and modify in Japan. You'll find a few people will, mm-hmm. but it's not the same kind of thing and I, I really like that about it because it's so, it is built to the standard of um a car that they would build in japan but it's not the car they would necessarily choose to build yeah which i i, I think is fairly indicative of the way the uk japanese scene is and, and slightly wider in europe as well but definitely in the uk 
because we haven't got the base models left anymore because they got scrapped or exported or bang erased. So you just do with what you can and that's what you found and that's what you could mm -hmm. afford. And now you have um, a car that wouldn't necessarily look out of place turning up at um, Moon Eyes or Odd Nationals, but you built it in your garage in Tamworth. Yeah. <laughs> and I, nice. always, I always remember, um, I mean, it was absolute honour and a privilege that James, when I was doing stuff for retro cars, you know, James Littman actually shot the car. Mm. And at the time, my, you know, my parents' house had kind of, there was the house and they had a bit of a gravel driveway and then opposite, they had this garage and a carport and we, which was a massive enabler for all my car play. So, you know, my mum is equally responsible as my dad because she just let me destroy her house and do all this stuff, which was, <laughs> you know, wonderful. Um, but we set it all up. And at the time, I also had my Bart 1 MX-5, which was an ex-Frog Eyes Unos in blue with marked SSR Mark II wheels. And we sort of set it all up to look like a tiny um, backstreet Japanese garage and did this really, ah, did this nice. really awesome shoot. But... You know that was that was a that was a long long time ago. I know James Lipman has has gone on to um, bigger and better things and working for obscure car magazines. Now. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't he, think he's doing cash in hand sheets for retro likes of magazines like retro cars anymore. I think <laughs> no, you know yeah. Bentley and Rolls Royce phone him these days. Or yeah, onwards and upwards. Mm. Um, so tell us about the MX Five actually, because um, I I remember you having this car. I saw you run it at um, Brands Hatch, I think, um, where you got black flag for going a little bit sideways, a little bit accidentally. Yeah, retro um, scene magazine was there, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, a little bit, and uh, <laughs> whatever that was. Um, no, that's another domain I've lost. Um, and um, I kind of remember this car and it was a thing, but it's subsequently talking to people. I don't know if you know this, your MX-5 build is like super influential for loads of people that build MX-5s. So do you know that? That's like, I like when, I, when I talk I, to people, they're like, oh, do you know, do you know that, uh, that blue MX-5 that race for 86 built? And I was like, yeah, I know that clown. He's awesome. <laughs> That's amazing. Cause uh, I mean, it totally passed me by. I mean, I remember being on kind of, mx5 forums and stuff for bits and posting pictures and the odd picture on driftworks and that kind of stuff because that was you know sort of what i was into but i mean that car came about um by chance as much as anything i was i was you know by this point absolutely obsessed with japan mountain racing you know all that kind of stuff and this car came up for sale and it had SSR Mark II wheels on and I thought I can't believe it they're SSR Mark II wheels nobody has SSR Mark II wheels in 13 by six and a half four by 100 PCD let's go and see this car dad so um off we did and it was literally abandoned in someone's front garden with grass growing all around it um but I bought wow. it anyway I was, sorry I was, about that like how'd you, how'd you go from uh, getting like ssr mark ones to just going oh, i'm not interested in this car anymore I've, I've no idea i think i think someone had imported it um having fancied the idea of a little convertible for the summer but when it kind of turned up it was really noisy it had a virtually straight through center exit exhaust on it and various other bits it needed some it needed some love um but it had these wheels on so i basically bought it because of the wheels it had on it um but it turned out to be a pretty solid car you know a lot of them they all rock the sills out of the drain holes and they don't like english winters and all that sort of stuff but it was actually pretty good and i don't think it'd been here this long and then you start to notice things on it like it had 
the, the mirrors, the door mirrors had been removed and instead of filling the holes, they put these plaques over them and it was Frog Eyes, which is like a big Japanese roadster club. And, you know, JDM fanboy was absolutely, you know, <laughs> going, going mad for this car. I couldn't believe it had like a, a UNOS dealer sticker on the back and, you know, all these little bits and details were there. Um, so a lot of what I did was kind of bring it mechanically back up to scratch, give it a good clean up, some paint, detailed all the engine bay, fitted coilovers, some better tyres, lowered it. And then I, I did, I think I kept that car about three years and I put 60 or 70,000 miles on it. It was my everyday car. And, it, and do you know what? It never missed a beat um, at all. I, I, I think I put three gearboxes in it. You know, so, so it's, it, never it's a relative. <laughs> it never missed a beat other than the gearboxes you need to replace. <laughs> yeah. yeah, other than three gearboxes. <laughs> but I, um, it was more because they were noisy rather than they actually failed. But you know, it never left me stranded. And it had a, it had a pretty hard life because um, I had a great country lane commute to work at the time. So, you know, every day it was 10 tenths and saw the rev limiter and I put a bucket seater in it and then a Pexi RSM. Um, which was meant for a slightly newer car um, than the Mark 1 MX-5. So I had to get my brother, who's an electronics genius, we've taken two very different paths in life, to kind of work out what all the inputs and outputs were from the ECU. And we've managed to solder it in. So this Apexi RSM lit up and it told you revs and speed and all this nice. sort of stuff, which was just one of those cool things. And it just had one bucket seat in it and a hard top and it was blue and a splitter and it scraped and there was zip ties, which was fashionable at the time and a subway hanger off the back. But I believe I got through you at some, some yeah, point. Yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, still got them. They Yay. never went with the cars. They're hung up in my garage right now. Um yeah, and I did huge miles in it. You know, I had to do two cam belts in it because just because I've done that many miles in it, it was brilliant. I moved house with it with a mattress on the roof. I used to <laughs> I used to carry my BMX in it. I used to put my mountain bike on the hard top with a inflatable roof rack and all sorts of stuff. And yeah, that was my car. It was great. Yeah, no, as I say, it's it seems to have become an influential car, but. Uh... It's a, a sort of a, a testament to your eye for stuff. In fact, that's actually where I was going to um, swing around back to your um, Euro rap style um, Chevette, but also also just about everything else, the JDM stuff. Um, we'll come on to your Herald and thing to, uh, at some point, but that is definitely included in this and your um, desire for those strange rear engine German things mm. um, and, and various other things. You always seem to be one step ahead of everything. And I don't mean that in like a planned way. It's just like you're wherever the zeitgeist is going with cars, or at least older cars, you're kind of already there. Um, and I don't want to go, how do you do that? Like whether you're, you've got like some kind of insane mind. It's more like, where are you absorbing your influences from? Like, so when you're looking around at car stuff, where are you looking and, and what catches your eye or, or what will catch your eye on a, on a regular basis? Yeah, well, you know, thank you very much. Um, yeah, the thing was, it was, it was, it was, it has to be said. So, so at that time, you know, my my car world was well exploded at this point, and you know, the the Japanese scene, JDM stuff was absolutely kind of it took took over. But 
you know, still massively interested in in everything and kind of being on retro rides, the forum fueled that. I mean, that was the place for all of it, wasn't it? You, you sort of, you go on VZI to look at all the Volkswagen air-cooled stuff and I love, you know, you kind of love all that and, you know, all, there was huge amounts of those influences in in the, the Euro Rat Chevette. You know, that was just an air-cooled VW kind of look car at the end of the day, but wasn't an air-cooled VW. Um, but yeah, look, all, all sorts of forums and you trawl through Minkara car view. You, yeah, yeah. you know, you kind of look at all that sort of stuff and these cars are sitting right and that looks cool. And there was kind of no scene for it all really that, that brought it all together co- cohesively, apart from kind of retro rides and as like that were all kind of sharing pictures and fueling each other's interests. And, and you just couldn't get that kind of complete mix of scenes anywhere else and then kind of retro cars magazine came in and that sort of solidified things as well and and, and the, sh- the shows were starting to get a bit that way um because it was it was sort of all bubbling up under the surface wasn't it and it was kind of all all there and i think the in- the you know the internet was a pre- you know pre-social media internet was a real great you know I just used to sit for nights on end and you know that's sort of where the, the blogging thing came out of as well um just trawling the internet for inspiration and sites and there was like clean.be as well oh yeah I remember that yeah, yeah edition 38 and clean.be so that was a real you know th- those guys were doing some amazing things with opals and still to this day I'd love a you know a, an opal cadet on Tremont wheels or HTMs or something, you know, in a lovely pastel color and interior <laughs> doesn't match, sort of thing. You know, those, those kind of influences really stuck with you. So, yeah. And then, then you sort of disappeared off into the world of proper classics, although you maintained the Rob Richardson painted lowering and sticking wheels on it in an expert manner. Um, yeah. Which, which was sort of slightly more. It, it kind of predated petrolicity type stuff, but like it came along at a similar kind of time, and, and it's that kind of movement as well. That I'm, like you, you were sort of firmly ensconced in our weird little retro world, um, and then this sort of petrolicious stuff sort of bubbled up to the surface, and you were kind of already there because you had your Herald on tastefully lowered on its wide steels and with its nice interior and its tweedness and all, all of that kind of business. Yeah. And that, that was just always interesting to me that you're one, like one, like not, not light years ahead of everyone else in terms of like a Troy Trepanier style, I'm inventing the future, <laughs> but like more a kind of wherever it's kind of going, you're kind of already one step, a, a step into that direction, which I always find interesting. I find people like that very interesting. It's not, I don't ever think it's a, um, a planned or structured thing. I just want to know how your brain works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I, and, you know, I'd love to tell you there was a, pl- a plan and structure, but it was kind of, it's all a bit of a fluke, isn't it? You know, I started I started getting really into the, for, for want of a better genre description, the kind of Goodwood revival style of car and go, you know, I'd been very kind of 70s focused, but then you kind of, where'd you go from here? And you start to look at 60s cars and I guess in my brain, the, the kind of turning point was going from, I was really interested in going fast 
and making cars fast and pointy and handly and that was the ultimate goal and they had to look cool as well but that was like a you know a, a function over form thing and then actually it's sort of shifted and I think I'm, I'm right the other end of that spectrum now with what I'm into and where I am with cars and that'll probably come out when we start talking about the 911 and why that went um in as much as I want, you know, I want a car that de delivers an experience, um, and that experience isn't necessarily going fast. And and once you get into kind of the 60s stuff, you you you're driving along in this car at 30 miles an hour, and my you know my Herald was case in point for that. And and you know it's the thing is just bristling, and you're just having an adventure at really kind of low speeds. And, and everything you do with it, whether, you know, just going to the shops and it's a cliche, but, you know, you use them in normal life for commuting or shopping or, or whatever is your car and you kind of, you know, the proper time machines. And um, yeah, I wanted to do something Goodwood, but didn't have a Goodwood budget. But the, the, the Triumph Herald was a, sort of overlooked and, and sort of still is, you know, for yeah, a yeah. Nine, 1960s car. Um, they're no money. Yeah. <laughs> You can pick them up ridiculously cheaply. I always expect, I always wait to go onto like eBay or something and look at them and go, ah, okay, yeah, they're all 10 grand now. Yeah. But that's never happened. It's, it's like, like, it's, I, 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 like, don't tell anyone because I've still, yeah. you know, I still want to go back there eventually. That is, you know, you, you never, you should never go back, but I would 100% go back. And I'd have spent a lot of time trying to find my Herald again. You should definitely get another Herald, and um, I can point you in the direction of people that can provide you with a Coventry Climax engine. Um, just throwing that out there. Ooh, I can't remember who did that conversion. That was a real thing. Was it That's Brabham? Brabham. Yeah. 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 So my, my dad has a story. I'm, I'm going to derail your podcast very briefly and tell yeah, you a story funny. that's awesome. Um, my my family's from in and around Epsom area in uh, Yule, and um, my the Brabham's um, showroom or factory was nearby and uh my dad remembers it shutting down and then just selling stuff out the back of the door and they were selling uh brabham's heralds and stuff out of the uh out of the back door um, apparently the one of the ones that got sold my dad eventually insured i think from from what the story or he knew the person that, that got it it was it lived around that area for a little while before disappearing off somewhere so uh he's not still that, got that in a shed somewhere has he no because... my God, can you imagine that? <laughs> uh, sadly i think that that was uh that, that was a long time ago my, my, my parents have never really moved so uh, uh i think that car would sadly be long gone although i should double check with him in case um there's it's been inherited somewhere um because I, I, he told me that story many many years ago which is why i worry about misremembering facts on it but um he told me that story, and I was like, oh, Brabham's uh, Herald, that's pretty cool. And then I looked them up, and I was like, oh, that's vanishingly rare. <laughs> it's yeah. not even like it's a thing that, oh, there's a few of them. There's, yeah. there's, there's hardly photos of them. Yeah. I think Speedwell, <laughs> Speedwell did some bits for them as well. That's kind of, you know, they're really associated with minis and VW Beatles, but I think they, you know, the Speedwell did some suspension stuff, I think. Oh, let's all go out and buy Herald and make No, cool don't ones. buy Herald. Nobody buy Heralds. I'd like Heralds to remain cheap because I desperately want another one. <laughs> and, and really interestingly, so I sold I, I sold mine heart, heartbroken and with a lump in my throat for no good reason. Um, after having it for quite a long time for one of my cars, and I spent five years trying to find it. And every now and then I post on social media or a Herald Club on Facebook or something and say, oh, I don't, I don't know if anyone's seen this. TAL 822G, my Herald, really sentimental, means a lot to me. I'd love to get it back one day. If anyone knows where it is, let it go. 
and I'd, I'd left it for probably a couple of years and then I, I just got a direct message on Instagram from this guy and it's just like hiya um I think I've got your herald I just wanted to let you know it's still in good hands like, yes amazing like you know send me pictures and then we've had this bit of back and forth and then you know I'm, I'm the plan is to go and visit it eventually but obviously all this has happened so travel's a bit weird at the minute but um yeah hopefully this summer at some point I'll actually get to go and see it again so there you go we'll be reunited you should take a camera and make a video for uh retro rides yeah i could do i could do maybe i'll get um jason on the case he can come and worship you in your uh, mx5 (laughs) shout out to jason um so yeah it's interesting that you sort of you go all in on something i think that's probably the fair to say so you, you kind of like all in on minis until you built what is obviously a ridiculous mini that could have exploded any minute um and then you kind of went on the 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 high-speed tarmac rally type stuff and then you kind of all in on the jdm kind of thing which actually really is a a sort of jdm or japanese at least trait it's like to go 100 percent into something we Mm. had a conversation a little while ago um uh talking about just how well they build minis for a car that wasn't built in japan it's like that's mm-hmm. they build them out of all of the right parts there's, and there's then an you've amazing, done this- amazing instagram account called caroline and george just check it out if they just do the most beautiful minis in british cars but anyway carry on. Superb. No, yeah, can I look at that <laughs> and then so you've done the same with the you went all in on the the kind of the goodwood look what retro ride would describe as the cafe racer slash gentleman racer look we have a thread about it, it go and look in there for inspirations um and um then the 911 where did that come in uh i remember you buying that car but i don't remember much preamble to it yeah, so 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 there were there's there's been three Porsches in my life. So <gasps> oh yes, we've got to talk about melons. I forgot melons. about that. Melons. Yeah, that's another car that's lived a life and legacy. So just, should we do melons first? Let's that's do melons first. So melons was um, a white Porsche 94 two liter. So the registration registration was SNO 73 M. W. Yeah, W. That was it. W, um, which obviously upside down read melons perfectly, which was just the most brilliant thing ever. And people at car shows used to, in the night, turn another plate upside down and I didn't notice and I never got caught by the police, which was great. So, um, yeah, always always wanted a Porsche, but at the time, just, you know, from reasons of admiration for engineering, they're generally really cool um it felt like a bit of a coming of age step up almost you know graduating to something from stunt guy just sort of felt special at the time and you know the lowest rung on the ladder was the two litre 94 so (laughs) so that was inevitably where it where where it was and you know you spend your entire time telling people it's not a van engine it's got a different inlet manifold and it's <laughs> it's a really good gt and it had the transaxle cars handle so well and there's all these, and it's all true but you always you know defending yourself for not having 911 um but yeah that got that got modified so that was a an ex concourse car um which is a bit sad because i you know, cut the arches out of it and dropped it on some compromotive CXs. It was saying they were seven and a half in the front, nine inches wide in the rear and did all coilovers and changed all the interior. And that was my everyday car. So I made that into my daily driver. Um, but it was a really, really nice car. And 
you know, th this is the kind of way I dragged my parents on this journey with me because they sort of, I was always using their facilities and I'd, I'd come home and I'd be like, Dad, I've, I've, I've bought this immaculate X concourse Porsche 94. I want to put stupid wheels on it and cut the arches out of it and mess it about. And, you know, instead of saying, you don't want to do that, why would you do that? It sort of helped me. <laughs> I think I just, I just sort of took him with him and he was kind of, he came with me on my madness, which is brilliant. Um, so, yeah, so that, and that car ended up like that and I daily drove it and it was fantastic though cage jet injection wasn't so fantastic but that you know I've, I had that on the 911 as well um so yeah so that got sold um and I sold it to a friend who I worked with who sold it to a you know sold it to another friend who I used to work with <laughs> weird um and then it disappeared and then it literally reappeared one street away from my parents house by That's pure strange. coincidence and the guy who owns it now mick armstrong has still got it he's had it a long time and he's done all the right things with it you know it's exactly as it was in terms of all the bits that i put on it the wheels how it sits every, you know exactly how it was but he's just done everything nicer and it's got a nice exhaust on it and it's all been you know the paint's all been spaffed up again and it, you know he really looks after it and he takes it to shows and it's still doing the show scene now and um i got to drive it again and it's and it was you know so i had a bit of a reunion with that car as well which was which was good um so then there was stuff there was loads of stuff in between and after that but eventually um, I'd always wanted a 911. Everybody says that. Poster boy is either a Lamborghini Countach or a 911, but you know, fast Beatles were my thing, but always completely unattainable. Um, market was so we're probably talking, when did I have it? Probably five, five years ago, just over five years ago now, um, when I bought it. So market was all bubbly and on a one-way trend. And when I bought it, it was probably twice what it was the year before um, and it was a case of getting on and the only way I did it was by being completely um, frivolous and basically sold my when I sold my first house I took the equity out of my first house <laughs> and when I you know moving moving up on the property ladder what I did was get the biggest mortgage I was allowed on the house I then bought to free up loads of cash and bought this 911 um, <laughs> which was a 78 SC but it was all right. So it was it was black, which I wasn't keen on, but looks dead good. And it, I only didn't like the black because it always looked dirty and it's scratchy and blah, blah, blah. But on the car, it looked awesome. Um, it was left-hand drive, German market car, no sunroof, three-litre, SCs, 78 SC was kind of a one-year only thing. So that was good. It was rough as. <laughs> um, but that was kind of the price point I could get in on. And I knew I was going to do all the work on it myself but it had some of the right parts so it already had expensive stuff like the brakes had been done it had Bilstein dampers it was on 15 by 7 and 8 um foosh wheels which were you know I think you pay about three and a half thousand quid a set for an unrefurbished set now you know and it had all these on so I was like right well I can I can make something out of this you know that aligns to where I want it to be without without it sinking me um yeah, it was an it was it was an XSVP car, so um, it, 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 he I think he took it as a took it in as a debt and was doing bits and bobs with it. So it sort of it was a background car. So it ended up with all these great parts on it, um, but but had never really done anything with it. And the interior was wrecked and everything. And then I, I sort of 
just did my normal thing with it, um, which was kind of go through it top to bottom. You know, it always had the same wheels on it and it was black and it didn't have a ducktail and all that. So visually it didn't change that much, but you kind of wanted to be able to see it side by side because I put, you know, bigger profile tyres on it. So the tyres look right, agonised over decisions like that, got the ride height right, rebuilt all the suspension with adjustable everything and fancy bushes and had a really good alignment done on it and or just all sorts went through the inject I taught myself cage at injection so I've got the injection all adjustable and running really nicely and then at the time so you know it all ties back into the the magazine stuff as well which I guess we'll talk about though we might be here forever you might be bored of me but I, I ended up so I'd known Simon Jackson who was through retro cars who moved on to GT Porsche so I was then running the car through GT Porsche magazine so um kind of documenting the build of the car as well and it ended up with this fantastic Danske exhaust on it so all the heater deleted and it was branchy manifolds and it was super noisy and smelly and obnoxious and then um I did an interior with Cobra so it was all RSR seats and we'd had it trimmed in this amazing yellow and red it was Litchfield Tartan and Prototipo wheel and Renline bracing and um like all sorts of stuff on it I put an oil cooler on it and a little duct and new oil pipes and all this stuff and knowledge leads and plugs and you know it just went on and on and on and it was a really built car over the over the five years um and it was sort of sort of finished so it ended up being it was featured in gt porsche and it was the cover car on the subscription issue which nice. was just like holy, holy grail um, stuff for me because I, you know, I sort of don't believe in the internet anymore and still very strongly, <laughs> you know, believe magazines are the thing. And, you know, if someone's prepared to chop a tree down and pulp it and make something out of it to show your car off, I think that's a pretty big deal. Um, so that was kind of really special. It was his dream car. So, um, it was really built and really fantastic. I did some amazing trips in it. So we went to Spa Classic in it and we went in the scenic as you can route to Spa and I did Le Mans Classic in it. And we, you know, came back from Belgium and Bruges and did all this sort of stuff. So I did some really good European trips in it, which is kind of exactly what it was built for. Um, but I, I, you can't really say this because this is, you know, you're messing with Holy Grail stuff, but I sort of fell out of love with it. Um, yeah, well, I, I, I got to say, I, um, as people that are regular listeners to this will know, I own the Porsche no one else likes, um, which is the 996. Um, and I've never had a thing for Porsches. I like them enough, but I like a lot of cars enough. Um, but I have to say, having now owned and driven one when it occasionally works, um, and I'm not taking it apart because it takes, unlike Rob, um, when I take a car apart, it stays apart for a very long time. Um, when driving it, it is a very nice experience. Um, so it's interesting to me that you got your car as sorted as you did and then we're like, nah, why? Why? What's going on with yeah. your head, Rob? So so you've got you've got to remember context. Context of the fleet is something I always come back to. So, you know, I, I'm lucky enough to have two or three cars at a time. So the hat so kind of has to be this context in the fleet. Anyway, so so you know what it kind of goes back to what I was talking about with the Herald was you kind of driving that car at 30 miles an hour and it's just this amazing experience. It's the coolest thing ever. Um, 
even though the 9-11 was you know stiff not not unpleasant but it was you know on the racier side of suspension setup and it had this it basically had no exhaust on it so you know you when you started it up it literally rattled the windows and it was all lightweighted and everything but um uh, people are going to fall out of me for saying this but it was quite boring quite a boring car to drive <laughs> unless that, that sounds that sound you can hear is the internet drawing breath yeah i know dramatic from xgt porsche writer cover star porsche 911 to the stars owner sort of thing uh it was quite a boring car to own dramatic pause because it was just so good and unless you were on it 10 tens when you know it was as a driving experience you know without or you know without trying to be a, a all journal about it the way the steering weighted up and all the things about the you know weight transfer as you drive it and it was so fast I mean it was as a road car it was probably 230 horsepower I'd like to think with all the stuff and the lightweight and it was it it scraped under the ton you know as a road car it was absolutely brutal you know you know to drive fast but how how often like I'm, these days I'm built for comfort no speed as not speed as the as the saying goes and, and like how often can you really drive a car that fast 10 tenths on the road I'm not really into track days and all that sort of stuff so um for 95 percent of the time that I drove it it was quite boring because it was just good like you know this lovely lovely talky engine that was on fuel injection that when it was all set up right just started on the turn of the key and it drove and it and it rode all right and you could just sort of go to the shops with it without it really being an, an experience experience yeah and they're they're basically a perfectly capable car they're, yeah. they're like you could, well mine when, when it works is it might effectively my daily driver and the difference between driving that and driving my Volvo is they both put a different kind of smile on my face when I come back to see them in the train station car park. Hmm. Um, but actually getting in it and driving it home, it's just a really nice car. But I got mine effectively as a GT for doing European road trips and stuff. That was the main yeah. reason to have mine. Um, but if you've got a somewhat Larry car that's theoretically Larry, but then most of the time it's a bit boring and capable, perhaps that's uh, yeah, I, that's I think... was part. I, th- I think it wasn't the car it was my, I guess it was my usage usage profile of the car and and then there's you know there was kind of all the other stuff on top of it where where, where you know if you did have to start doing work on it, it you know it got scary expensive you, you know mm-hmm. you, you change the oil on the Toyota or the Mini or something it's kind of 30 quid for oil and a filter you change the oil on the 911 well you need 14 14 liters of high ZDDP oil and a proper Porsche filter because you're talking about a more expensive car that's just got to have all this right, right stuff on it. And, you know, you need 12 litres to fill it and then two litres to, you know, as top up over the summer you use it. So like an oil change is a mm, couple of hundred quid. And you start, you know, like you put oil, I put new oil pipes on the side because they had damaged down the seal and they were 600 quid and I put an oil cooler on it because it had a trombone cooler. And I think it was about 900 quid to do this kind yeah. of stuff and then you're watching the values climb as well and i think you know that w- at the point i got back out of it it was it to have that much money in a car for me was always a there was always a business case behind it which is a bit sad or but it was also the only way i could do it and to say i've done it is you know i built it exactly how i wanted it to be for for me it was peak 911 so i you know i had a 69 2.2 for the weekend 
once and it was just a really nice car but it was a and, and it was a boggo standard car and it was a bit tired so it's not a fair example and a modified one or a tweet one or a really up to scratch one would be better but it was a bit beastly um which isn't a <laughs> criticism it's it, it was just a you know my statement of fact and opinion so I'd sort of had that and getting into a later car you know it still had torsion bars it had the three liter it made all the right noises it was super fast it still had all the early dash and and heat like all the nerdy early stuff in it um but was an it was an, in, an impact car so I'd, I'd sort of done it i really enjoyed it had some amazing times with it built it exactly how i wanted it to be it looked phenomenal went phenomenal had some great trips some great memories but i had to get out yeah and, and what did it. you get into afterwards Oh, what, what, do, what does the man that sells the dream Porsche 911 buy after so he the, sold the dream? So the other car I'd always wanted, which was a BMW 2002. So it, it today is 12, the 12 month birthday of, um, of ownership ah. of my 2002. So yeah, I very specifically wanted an early car, three piece grill, round rear lights, carburetor, not injection because after KJ injection and making that work, I never wanted to see an injection car ever again. And, you know, 70s Kugelfischer is the only thing that's probably <laughs> more miserable to set up and adjust and live with than uh, than K-Jet. So, um, so yeah, um, and it's a bit of a weird story how it all came about. So the 9-11 went and I was actually, my wife was kind of pregnant with our first child. Um, so it's kind of like the worst time to buy a car that was going to be a big project to get out of <laughs> scratch. Um so I was bidding on, um, it, uh, you know, I was still going to do it anyway because I'm reckless like that. But I um, got into bidding on, um, you know, DV Mechanics. No. So the ex, the ex singer guy who had a really famous Petrolicious video for his beige Alpha Julia saloon. Mm. Um, Dorian Venzuela. I'm really sorry for pronouncing your surname wrong. But anyway, built this lovely Alpha Julia. He had a 2002 for sale in America. All the right bits on it. California car, beautiful patina. Um, and I thought, this is great. So started bidding on that anyway. Lost out on it. Um, and was kind of putting some feelers out and looking at, um, like, getting in touch with people about cars. And there was sort of kind of some in the Netherlands and Belgium. They were kind of all around there, but there wasn't really anything in the UK. And then I came across this company called Retro Engineering that I'd never heard of, but turns out they were a BMW 2002 specialist and they were about three miles from my house. They've moved oh. now, but I've lived here for five years and didn't know this at all. Anyway, so I just dropped them an email and said, hi, you know, this is what very specifically the BMW 2002 I'm looking for. And I just got an email back going, you won't believe this, but we've got a customer literally looking to sell that car. So... On, you, you know, I'm looking at getting cars from the States or the Netherlands and stuff and trying to work out how it all works. Heavily pregnant wife. Um, terrible time to buy a new car. Um, reckless thing to do with your money. Um, but yeah, so this, so this car turned up and it literally it rolled on the drive 36 hours before she went into labour. Nice. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so there's a picture of her sat in it on the drive heavily pregnant and then it got shoved in the garage and not looked at for a few weeks while I worked out what you did with a human or chassis number one as it's known as <laughs> chassis number one yeah so there you go so so the O2 so over the last year 
Um, by pure coincidence, again, magazines followed Simon Jackson as he's gone to become editor of BMW car, which was not planned at all. It was legitimately the O2 was the other dream car I wanted. Um, has basically gone through not a rebuild because it was a really nice car, good, you know, good paint, older restoration put together by an ex BMW Master Tech, which it probably was, but that sounds like the sort of thing you tell you when you're selling a car, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I stuck with it anyway. Um, and I've basically gone through that car and tried to keep it a bit more period correct. Um, so it's, but it's all the suspensions done, bushed coilovers, real coil, rear coilover conversion, um, branchy stainless exhaust system, and a, a bigger carb on it, and cooling systems all done. Um, it's lowered on Ronal Kleeblatt wheels, mm-hmm. so um, really rare, nice set of wheels that just sort of set the car off right. Cobra RSR bucket seat, Momo wooden GP wheel, little Hoyer stopwatch on the dash, and it's got, and it got the stopwatch. Got the stopwatch on the dash. That you know that was in the Herald as well, so that's got history. Um, but yeah, and it, and it and it really does. For me and my, you know, go back to my use case, what I guess the 911 was just a bit too much turned up for 11, so uh, to 11 to do. So it's a great experience just driving it. It's really usable. It's fast enough. I've done a kind of toe zero alignment on it. So it's pointy and pokey and a bit hangy outy and it makes great noises. But it's just a lovely car to be in and use to drive normally. So it's kind Uh of ticking those boxes. There you go. Uh, that's what the man that sells a dream car buys, a better car. Uh, so um, I have, I actually have a list of questions for you. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, we, have, uh, we have only a certain amount of time. So I'm going to fire Darren from uh, Darren Rangasamy, um, who we interviewed last week for the chain question business. His question for you is, how do you deal with creative block? Seeing Ooh. as you are a creative man. Do you know? Do you know what this is? This is something you that I think is worse now than ever, because when it when it was just a, f- a few of us on retro rides forum sharing ideas and bouncing things off each other, it was re- you know it was it was really good and you could get real kind of clarity and focus of purpose and what you wanted to do and generally what you were doing, whether it was or it wasn't within your kind of field of view and experience did feel like you were doing something kind of new and groundbreaking and no one else had done one before you know I don't know if anyone else's cafe raced a Triumph Herald before but you know at the time it felt like that was quite a new and interesting thing to do um but now where you know everything's everywhere you know I built my 911 but in the grand scheme of 911s it was absolutely rubbish compared to everything that's out there and gets filtered through your Instagram feed every day to make you feel inadequate about everything you're doing so um the, the best the, what I really find to get inspiration and get focus is I, I, I now more than ever I look at old magazines so be it old 60s issues of motorsport um, or whatever um, of the period of the car you're looking at to get a bit of a flavor of what you were you know what they were doing to those cars then I guess I'm a bit older now than I was when I was doing kind of the wild stuff and hanging all the coolers out the front of the cars and putting one eight five tires on nine inch rims and you know all that kind of stuff so where I'm sort of more in tune to is the kind of period correct plus you know I like to think when I build a car my kind of story for the car and kind of what I've done for the O2 
is, you know, imagine a works Alpina mechanic owned this 2002 and it was his everyday car, but he had access to all the kind of leftover racing car parts, but he still had to take his wife and kid to church in it on a Sunday. So it's, you know, it's got a racing seat in the driver's seat, but he was doing tourist laps at the Nürburgring on the weekend because, you know, and it's kind of... I like that. I like that. Building, a really nice idea. Yeah. I, I, you know, I want to build that story into the car. And I guess that my O2 is probably the best example of that. And, and I guess my Herald had some of that as well. Um yeah, that's, nice, that's a really nice approach, actually. It's almost like uh, sometimes you hear actors getting interviewed and they got like a character that has a bit of a backstory, but they'll go away and give them for themselves like a whole backstory so that they can imbue it with more character, which mm. is kind of what you're doing with your car. It's like saying, you know, once upon a time it was this, even if it never was. And what would that have looked like? That's a really nice approach. I like that. Um, if you were recommending a first classic to someone, what would it be? Oh, interesting. So everything's kind of expensive now. So yeah, that kind that. of takes it takes some of the fun out of it, but it also takes um, some of the viability out of it. So um, if you could if you could find a Vauxhall Chevette, <laughs> that'd be a brilliant that'd be a brilliant first classic. Uh, I mean, we've talked we've talked about Triumph Heralds being great value as well, and you know do them right they're you know they'll, they'll absolutely bulletproof and they'll look after you as long as you don't let them rot around your ears um but there's loads of stuff isn't there i guess more more modern stuff now that's not modern anymore that i still yeah. consider modern but isn't you know i i think of e30 so i had an e30 bmw at one point and i thought this is a new car um <laughs> but they're not now but i guess they're a bit they're a bit expensive too um I, if you if you wanted to go old school so i've dabbled very briefly with volkswagen beetles and i know it's a bit of a um a cliche answer well, that's not. That's, maybe that's because it's one yeah. of the right ones. Yeah, but I actually think, as someone who hasn't been a bit, you know, I haven't been a big Beetle guy, but I did it, and I was, I was, you know, what I was really impressed with that car, um, how it was all put together and everything, and, and had a bit of fun in it. Um, it didn't get a lot of internet airtime that, so no one really knows I did it. But it was in like a Patina '67, bought kind of unfinished off one of the RSVP VW guys, and it was four inch narrowed beam and foosh replica wheels and it was a really nice car um but yeah i think they're dead easy to work on cheapest chips still find a reasonably priced one and you can do a lot of stuff with them so not that's cool. not a bad shout that's a good shout that's a good shout um let me see uh what's the hardest job you've ever done on your cars oh hardest job um what's brought me to tears uh, that's, <laughs> like, that, that's how you know a job's got hard <laughs> loads of stuff yeah that's that's the measure i think re rebushing a car yeah is, yeah it's dirty it's miserable you're always left with a sense that do i really do i really need to do this but once you've once you've done it and you've fitted some really nice uprated bushes into your car you it makes a huge 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 difference i saw um a video fairly early on in my ownership of this bloody 996 um where someone had taken their car to a garage i think it was a sponsored video and got the whole thing rebushed 
mm. like just got poly bushes throughout and new suspension. And when they got it back, they were just saying, even without the new suspension, it feels like I bought a brand new car, like it's straight yeah. off the forecourt. And then I looked out into like the effort and cost of getting that done. And then I thought, no, nah, just that's fine. I'll just leave it. <laughs> yeah. It looks insanely hard. Uh, I did the I did the O2 over winter, and it was like you know making tools out of threaded bar to get them out and setting mm. them on fire and oh, just the worst job. But now yeah. it's done. It's amazing, and, and you'll never have to do it again. You know, the, yeah, that's the true. It's a job you do once. <laughs> it's a job you do once, and they'll outlive the car. So it's it's done, and it is a worthwhile job. But yeah, horrible. <laughs> superb um i was going to ask you what your dream build is but we already know you did it and you sold it so i did it uh, and sold it but i think now um <laughs> what, what money, Al- alpha tz1 yep okay yep. <laughs> i agree that is a legitimate answer <laughs> i will allow it <laughs> um you've recently bought a car although you don't keep cars for very long quite often um what have you got your eye on at the moment uh um at the moment so um my old herald's still in the back of my mind and whether that buying that will be an option um i've got a mini at the moment as well so i've got this 93 mini that i've sort of backdated to mark three that isn't really a internet fame car it's more of a smashing around summer daily driver but it you know so it's got some nicer stuff on being a later later car but it's on tens and i've put the early lights in it and all that sort of stuff um but deep down on there it's not really the car i want and i had always promised myself a mark one mini kind of just to close the book on minis yeah. so unfinished business nice. there is unfinished business i've also got a real thing so this is niche ish um i really want to get a late an eight a late 80s citroen 2cv so it's the wrong one to buy but deliberately so it's got the 602 engine and it's the bit cheap and cheerful and then make it look like a uh, a sahara kind of a sahara-esque meets 911r meets like gravel push bike okay i'll let that i'll let that weird i'll let that weirdness stew and you know in my mind it's kind of lifted skinny tires but sort of knobbly it's got like 911r rear lights in it relocated rear number plate recessing the bonnet for the spare wheel the roof rack with the jerry can on you know that sort of thing yeah yeah rivety yeah rivets and exposed aluminium a bit bomber yeah yeah, that, so everybody just take note, the um, off-roady overlanding type stuff is the next thing you need to get into because that's what Rob's thinking about. Um, all, all the cool kids are going up, no one's going down anymore. Yeah, all the cool kids are literally <laughs> are going up. It's a, it's a, The overlanding stuff is is good stuff. I'm, I'm all on board with it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to end with, for the time being, um, what's the favourite car you've had the chance to drive? It could be one of your own, but it could be someone else's. Uh, I, I, I'm I'm going to almost undo everything I've said about the 911 and say the the 911 on the right road on the right day was without a shadow of a doubt, having been lucky enough to drive some really interesting and cool cars, 
the single best automotive experience you can have. <laughs> and there he goes. Yeah, there, there is a story. So we were driving to when we drove to Spa Classic, we got completely lost because we were following a sat nav. And we did this big loop and we came out, we came out on the middle of this closed road. And we all sort of had this moment where we looked at each other and said, well, you know, it's a Sunday, no one's working, the diggers are all there and the lorries are blocking this road. And it was just this beautiful twisting road through up through a woodland and perfect tarmac. And just wreck, just drove up this road, 10 tents, windows down, flat six howling. It was quite, it was that almost movie moment of that car and never to be repeated you'd never do it if it wasn't a flash decision you're never going to a closed road in the middle of the woods in Belgium ever again and it, and it sort of closed the book on that car for me and it was just the perfect automotive nirvana moment and I had it, with it and that was great so it helped me let it go that's absolutely absolutely superb well thank you very much Rob um I probably would like to have you come back again because there is much more to discuss about your uh life with cars um mm. and if you're uh, on your way to go and see the uh, herald hit us up because um i think that would make a nice video for people yeah well uh, thank you for having me it's been uh, a, a joyful meander through through our, our mutual history yeah wonderful stuff um next time we have mr chris pollitt of um not too grand blog fame and um i think he is also probably known now for doing uh, car on classic because he uh, writes for them quite a lot um and also another um old school retro rides person so um, as all of the right people in the world are so uh, we will see him next time and uh, hopefully have a question for him from rob um, until then have a good time <laughs>